0: Our entire culture in every way is about ranking. Sometimes the rankings are announced and public. Sometimes they're fun. Other times they're private and unspoken and deadly serious. You see that really in every, every arena of life. I, for one, and I've been surveying the the people attending in each service, so I'll extend the survey to you. I, for myself, as many dinner parties and gatherings as I've gone to, if I go to a dinner party or a gathering where there's going to be food with people I haven't met in an unfamiliar place, I never know where to sit. Does anybody else struggle with this? It seems in both services that my fellow men admitted to struggling with this concept. The women looked at me as if I shouldn't be having this problem. Maybe uh, maybe women are more discerning in social situations and immediately know how to place people. I, for myself, I'm always a little bit puzzled. So I always show up just a couple minutes late to the actual seating or hang back in the corner of the room and wait to be told where to sit lest I sit in a place. and They go, no, that's not for you. And you go sit down there. Jesus even gave instructions about this. He said never to sit in the best places or you might be asked to move down. He said rather choose a lower place. If they invite you to come up, then that'll be better. Then and now, there's always rankings. Yesterday, as is happens every Saturday during the fall, our entire nation was convulsed by college football because... As you may know, there are rankings in Division I college football, and some people get paid quite a bit of money to decide who the best 25 teams are. And, such as happened to Oklahoma yesterday, if a high-ranked team loses to a lower-ranked team, or somebody who's not even on the board, grown men who should know better get very, very upset. This especially happens in the Southeast. If you watched any football yesterday, you saw a bunch of college kids in the stands at games played all across the Southeast, looking as if they had just been told that their entire family was lost at sea, and all that was happening was the rankings weren't working out into the reality of the actual competition on a football field. The entire world was transfixed by... What is going on with the ceremony after the death of the Queen of England? Talk about rankings. Most Americans, well, I don't know about most, but many Americans who have never lived under the Queen or a King their entire lives, whose laws and constitution make that sort of thing absolutely impossible, are actually obsessed, transfixed by The pomp, the ceremony, the wealth, the traditions. One of the kids was not allowed to wear a certain kind of clothing at a certain event. And the entire internet caught fire in the indignation that he couldn't wear this thing, but his brother was. Probably the most fun thing I've read about the queen is apparently the queen had a signal. Because the queen obviously has servants. She's the queen. And she used her purse as a signal. If the queen put her purse on the table, that was a signal to a servant, I'm ready to be done with this conversation in the next five minutes. If the queen put her purse on the floor, that meant I'm done with talking to this person right now. Come get me. Get this person out of my sight. Now, none of us here are kings and queens. Don't you wish you had that faculty? (laughs) to maybe put your coffee cup to your left and have somebody come and just whisk the offending person away. All that means is that some of the few people who got to meet the queen are now remembering with heartbreak that when the queen was talking to them, at a certain moment she gave them a look and put her purse on the floor, which meant their last conversation with the queen, she was completely done with them. Why am I bringing this up? Because the passage of Scripture in front of us this morning is a conversation with Jesus. This Sunday and the next two Sundays, we're going to select from the Gospels conversations that Jesus had with people. And it's really a rather extraordinary concept. Because Jesus really is the incarnate Son of God. He is God in the flesh. He knows everything. In fact, according to the witness of Scripture, He made everything, including the people who He's going to have the conversation with. But Jesus, though the Son of God, does not only teach people and lecture them as he could. He also asks them questions. And it's really kind of a mysterious and wonderful thing. Jesus can't actually learn anything from the questions he's asking people. John chapter 2 explicitly says that Jesus did not entrust himself to people because he knew what was in their heart. In other words, Jesus, like you and me, can only observe actions and evaluate words. Jesus knows everything about everybody he's ever talking to. And yet, in love and in grace, he actually holds two-sided conversations with give and take because Jesus may not learn anything, he can't, but often the people who listen to him and the people who hear his questions and try to answer them, they do. And that's what he has for us in Matthew, please, chapter 20. And though I've printed out the sheet, on the sheet I've put in front of you the passage that we're going to use. I'd love this Sunday and every Sunday if you would use your Bible because I need to show you something, well, in, and as this sermon unfolds, I'd like to show you something that actually happened before this conversation that really gives it some weight and some focus. In Matthew chapter 20, let me give you the backdrop. This isn't printed, but let me tell you when this conversation took place. Matthew 20, verse 17. It says, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, as Jesus referring to himself in the third person, but not like a braggadocious athlete, Jesus is referring to himself in the third person because he's taking a messianic title from the book of Daniel. It was written hundreds of years before his time, but by appropriating that title, Jesus is saying to his disciples, again, the prophets spoke of me. What happens next is a personal, specific fulfillment of prophecy. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and He will be raised on the third day. This is the third time in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus has explicitly told His disciples that His life will end on a Roman cross crucified in the environs of Jerusalem. He's not only announcing that in a very general headline kind of way, He's actually telling them step by step what that's going to look like. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be beaten, because according to historical records, the beating that preceded the crucifixion often killed the man who was to be crucified, and after being flogged, then he's going to be crucified, it will kill him, and he will rise from the dead three days after his death. That's the explicit instruction by Jesus with a pretty decent amount of detail on their way to Jerusalem, which is what makes the conversation that follows so extraordinary. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, they're not mentioned by name, only by their relationship and their father's name, but that's James and John. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And you may have read this story in another gospel where it says that James and John come and ask things of Jesus. There's no contradiction. All three people are coming specifically to Jesus. The pronouns in English don't let us see it, but they do in Greek and they would in Spanish. Jesus speaks here first to the mother and then to the group All three of them are in concert. They've come up with this idea. They're just putting mom in the front row to actually do the talking. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. What do you think about that request? A family member of mine would say simply this, the audacity. Because that's what's happening here. Jesus has just told them, you are walking with me up the hill toward Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed there. Before you are, Jesus, our mother has something to ask you. (laughs) Mom? Say that these two sons of mine, say that James and John will sit in your kingdom in two privileged places. I want literally one to be your right hand man. I want the other to be your guest of honor. I want two executive vice presidents, if you will, Jesus, in the kingdom with you. It's rather callous, especially in the way that Matthew chose to tell the story. Because Matthew is telling you for the third time, Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm on my way to be publicly mocked, publicly tortured, and then publicly murdered on a Roman cross. Let's go, men. Just one word from mom, Jesus. Mom, Jesus, would you please make sure that in your kingdom, after you die, could you look out for my son and his brother? Now, let's be as sympathetic as possible. Have you ever advocated for your children? those of you who have kids? I certainly have. I've never asked anybody to bend the rules. I've never tried to corrupt the system. But I've put in a good word for my boys. I've done what I can to help them. It's a natural impulse. My older son's an infantry officer and a retired soldier told me that while he was in the worst part of his training, I should send a letter to his command sergeant major and include pictures of ryan in childhood and put a letter in with the pictures explaining that he was a very sweet boy and that there was no need to yell at them the way the people who were training him almost certainly were when ryan finally got out i told him i had received that advice and he said dad please tell me you didn't i said no your dad's not the sharpest tool in the shed, but even I'm not that dumb to put you, in that, uh, put you in the line of fire that way. But he got through it. And even though my sons are now adults, when I hear that they're going through a rough time or somebody is being unfair with them, I have to restrain myself and not be the helicopter parent who swoops in. Mom's doing the best she can. And here comes the answer. Jesus answered... You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, this is very Jewish. doesn't make a lot of sense to us 2,000 years later. But in biblical terminology, the cup was something that you were going to drain, bottoms up, including the dregs. The cup spoke of suffering. The cup was a symbol particularly of the judgment of God. And Jesus knows what He's been telling His disciples and what they seem to have callously disregarded and seen not as a gift of love on their behalf but an opportunity for their own advancement. I'm on my way to the cross. Well, when you're done with that in your coming kingdom, can we be your number one and your number two? You don't know what you're asking. I'm on my way to drink down a cup of suffering. Do you think you can do that? And they foolishly say, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So this mission was a failure, except in one regard. If you keep reading through your Bible, you're going to find out that James and John actually fulfilled what Jesus here promised them and prophesied over them. James was one of the very first Christian martyrs. Early in the book of Acts we're told that James was killed with the sword. John is one of the few apostles who is not murdered according to church history though they tried But he is going to be exiled in his old age and die of old age, likely with the scars of being a faithful Christian in the first century, marking his body before he succumbs to old age and dies after a lifetime of suffering. James and John are actually, after all, going to drink the cup of suffering that they assured Jesus they could, but they didn't get what they had hoped for. And according to verse 24, it sent the whole group into turmoil. When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. So now, everybody's upset. Mom didn't get what she want, and the twelve are arguing among themselves. And I've wondered for years... Since all twelve were upset and indignant against the two brothers, there's no way to answer this question, which is why I've puzzled over it for a long time. Were the ten angry at the audacity of the two? Or were there at least some among the ten who said, you know, that's a pretty good idea. These two are trying to horn in on something that we deserve. We love him more than they do. We serve him more than they do. We've certainly sacrificed more than those two have. I don't know, and it doesn't matter, because Jesus turned this whole debacle into one of the biggest lessons for disciples of Jesus that he ever taught. What follows is just a few more verses. Let me explain to you what's going to happen now. In what follows, Jesus is going to completely reverse everything your heart, this culture your job, your school, and maybe even your family has taught you about getting ahead and being great in the world. Everyone in this world desires greatness. Everyone in this world desires recognition. Not everybody wants fame, but nobody wants to be ignored. Nobody wants to be humiliated. Nobody wants to be devalued and degraded and mistreated. Everyone wants recognition. In our own way, we all want to be great. Maybe not famous, maybe not even wealthy, but we all want to know that we have done well, that we have stood out, that we have done our best, that we have achieved our potential, that we have not been a disappointment to ourselves, to our family, to our boss, to our God, to anybody we respect. We don't want to disappoint them. That's what's driving the two to get mom to ask for this audacious request. Jesus, in your kingdom, when your suffering is over, you please look out for my kids? And then ten rise up and said, the world's wrong with you two. That's not your place to ask. And if you read the Gospels carefully, I won't take the time to show you, but this is a constant argument between the disciples. They even argued over it at the Lord's Supper. This continual need for ranking, for standing out, for achieving, will not leave them, which is why Jesus taught them what follows, and why this lesson is so important, so vital for contemporary disciples of Jesus. Jesus had a lot of conversations and a lot of teaching. This teaching is left in the Gospel of Matthew for you, and as I'm going to admit to you soon, to me. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. 2,000 years later, but that's still the way the world works. You have anybody in your life that lords it over you? If you're not, you're very, very fortunate. But almost all of us do. Or at least we could unless you've arranged a life, and some of you have, where you literally answer only to yourself, almost all of us could get in trouble tomorrow. Go to your work, go to your school, go to wherever you do what you do, and tell the people in charge, I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't answer to you. I'm an autonomous human being made in the image of God, and today I will do what I please. How's that going to go for you? you'll probably be released to seek God's favor and uh, make a contribution to the world somewhere else. <laughs> We're all one conversation away from wrecking our lives because everybody answers to somebody. And Jesus acknowledges this and says, listen, the way it works in the world with Gentiles, a stand-in word for people who don't know God, their rulers, they're great ones, they wield that power. They make people feel it. They never let people forget who's in charge, which way the power, which way the prestige, which way the money flows. And then he says this. Originally, this is for 12. It's written in the Bible because it's for every disciple. It shall not be so among you. In other words, Jesus turns our world's idea of greatness upside down. Everything we've been culturally conditioned, everything social media and broadcast media has taught us, everything we've learned about standing out, getting ahead, and being great, Jesus is going to turn that upside down. He turns our world's idea of greatness upside down. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. that wasn't clear enough, get this. Whoever would be first among you must be your, what's it say there? Slave, Slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The world's idea of leadership, of greatness, of prominence, of getting ahead turned completely upside down. And I have to be careful here, and I have to make sure that you understand this. What Jesus is doing here is not denying that there is greatness. He's not denying that you want it. He's not squelching the idea that you should. He's redefining what true greatness is. And once he's told you what it really means to be great in the sight of God, he's explaining to you how to get there. Greatness, as it turns out, according to Jesus, is not lording it over people. It's choosing humble, sacrificial, slave-like service to them. Does that sound appealing to you? Could we get much of a rally going saying, everybody come out, we're going to learn to think and act like slaves. Does that sound good? Come gather round, this man's going to tell you how to be a servant to people who didn't ask for it, who may not understand it, who may never appreciate it, most of whom will never even thank you. You go into that TED talk? You're not. But Jesus did said that this is not only His instructions for His disciples, this is His very life. Look in verse 28. Even as the Son of Man, that's Him again, the Messiah promised by the prophet Daniel hundreds of years earlier, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yes, our idea of greatness is turned upside down. Here's three personal applications for you to get, help you understand this idea and help you get it, maybe get some traction in your own heart. Number one, our desire for recognition is relentless. That'll never stop. James and John heard that Jesus was on his way to die and chose that moment to go get their mom to see if her motherly kindness and grace could get them the best spots in the kingdom. It strikes me as callous. It's a little bit shocking that Matthew put these two stories side by side and the picture is this. Every single person in the world no matter how close they are to Jesus is always going to want to be great you're always going to be want to be recognized a misunderstanding of Christian teaching is that to be a Christian is to lose and you just have to kind of be this mealy mouthed my pastor would have said the kind of person who butter wouldn't melt in your mouth kind of a doormat of a person Who gets mistreated by all and is continually victimized and doesn't care, and that's genuine Christianity. It's not. Jesus isn't going to squelch the disciples' desire for greatness, He's going to teach them that it's been corrupted, that they are desiring the wrong things and for the wrong reasons but that greatness is actually something they should pursue, but it should be the right kind and it should be achieved in the right ways because in that way, they will prove themselves truly to be disciples of Jesus. We can't get away from this idea that wanting to be recognized, that wanting to stand out, that wanting to do well and to have it known is part of our nature. Nobody loves mediocrity. There's a reason there were all, these, all that indignation in college football yesterday. There's a reason we Dallas Cowboys fans have settled into kind of a grim acceptance that we're probably not going to win ever again. It's been so bad for so long, we've gone through the grief process and we've arrived finally at acceptance and personal growth. None of you having the opportunity to do a good job chooses willingly to do a poor one. Having the opportunity to have something good, you don't settle for something bad. Why is that? Because God is great, and He doesn't deny His own greatness. God wins, and He does not deny His ultimate victory. That's told in the last chapter of the book of Revelation. What Jesus is telling you is not to pursue mediocrity, Not to be indifferent to winning, not to be indifferent to greatness, but to accept greatness on his terms. And his terms is this. A self-seeking Christian is a contradiction, or at least it should be. A Christian who seeks greatness, so called, by making himself the center of attention, is actually losing. A Christian who pursues greatness, even in service to others, just to make sure He doesn't mind serving others just as long as somebody applauds and thanks Him, that person is losing. Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, came not to be served but to serve and to give His own personal life. His human life died with Him on a cross because He was rescuing many, many sinners. So the probing questions are not whether you want greatness, you do. The questions are these. What is it that you want? And if you get it, what do you plan to do with it? In the concept of Jesus, the person who rises, the person who is rewarded, the person who is great is the person who chooses to be a servant. The person arrives at being first because he has chosen to be a slave. Because, number two, discipleship to Jesus means selfless service to others, not to Jesus alone. I want to be really clear and really practical by that. If your concept of discipleship to Jesus is serving Jesus, but serving Jesus never involves lowering yourself and serving other human beings, you're not really serving the Lord very much at all. We've created, in some cases, this two-tiered fake spirituality where our service to the Lord is entirely spiritual and entirely personal and invisible and between God and us, consisting of worship and prayer and heartfelt love for God, but it never makes it out into the real world. It never actually looks like you doing what Jesus did His entire ministry, personally choosing the lower station, positioning Himself, though He was actually in charge, as the one who would lead by serving, by sacrificing, even by eventually dying. This is what it means to make your life a life of selfless service to other people. It's really, really important that you understand that Jesus is not squelching your desire for Greatness. He just wants you to be great on God's terms, not your own, because the values of this world and its system are completely and absolutely contradictory to the thinking and the teaching of God. Let me show you in Matthew 19. Best thing you can do is bring a paper Bible with you in the 21st century, I'm convinced. Matthew 19, verse 27. Here's the setup. It's a different story and a different conversation. We may cover it later. Jesus is dealing with a very rich young man. And Jesus' conversation and questions for him reveals that this young man ultimately loves money more than he loves God. He's not willing to follow Jesus on Jesus' terms. So he walks away, headed home toward his money and far from God. And Jesus is sad after him. He loves this young man. He sees the heartbreak. He sees the fatal choice. He watches him walk away with all of his money, but away from God. And he goes on to blow the disciples' mind by telling them, it's very hard for a rich guy to get saved. And that completely blows their mind. In fact, they argue with him just a little tiny bit. We won't look at the story, but they question him. How can that even be true? Because in their first century Jewish concept, if you were rich, that means that your life was pleasing to God. How can it be that people who are very wealthy actually are at risk of not finding God at all? And Jesus explains. And then Peter, beloved Peter, who always asked the question that somebody else should have asked, look in verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? That's pretty crass, isn't it? Peter, who was a commercial fisherman who had his own boat, says, okay, so you're really blowing our minds here. Rich people are at greater risk from missing God than we poor are. Hey, we've actually sacrificed everything, Jesus, to follow you. And then he asks him, what's in it for us? Did you see that? It's a very direct question. Don't read another verse in your Bible. How do you expect Jesus to answer? Do you expect him to tell Peter that's an impertinent and stupid question? Do you expect him to say something like, Peter, having me alone is worth everything? You shouldn't be concerned with greatness. You shouldn't be concerned with rewards. He doesn't do that. Listen, this might blow your mind. Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Whoa. That's pretty big for a fisherman. Peter, you're not going to lose by following me. The sacrifices you've made on earth are going to give you standing, are going to give you prominence, are going to give you a reward that you never imagined. And you'll say, well, that's pretty otherworldly, but that's for them. No, listen, here's where you come in. Verse 29. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. In other words, Jesus isn't squelching their desire for greatness, their desire for reward. He's telling them their sights are set too low. That anything sacrificed, anything lost in this earth for His name's sake. That's the key difference. Is your service for your name's sake, for your advancement, for your promotion, for you to be recognized or for you to be applauded? Or are you doing it all for His name's sake? If you do it in the attitude of a servant for the sake of Jesus and you lose much on earth, Jesus says, don't worry. It will be made up to you many, many times in the kingdom which is to come. But I'm haunted by verse 30. Many who are first will be last and the last first. If you'll indulge a very personal application, here's what that means to me as a senior pastor. See, right now the lights are on me, and I've got the mic. And I'm convinced because of this warning from Jesus that many who are first will be last, and those who are in the back of the line will end up at the front of the line in the new kingdom. That means that probably guys like me who are under the lights and have the mic, are going to be surprised in the coming kingdom. Because I won't mention any of the names because they would hate that, and that's not why they do it. There are ordinary members of this congregation who have never been on a church payroll, whose names you will never see in a bulletin, that serve other members of this congregation in such sacrificial, servant-like ways in ways that are so humbling and sometimes to them in the, ca- in the course of seeking the good of another person, so absolutely physically humiliating to them that I've got a pretty good suspicion that Jesus might say to men like me, you had your reward. You got the lights and you got the mic. And you didn't know it because you only heard a couple of the stories. This man here, this sweet little lady right here, She did the right work for the right reasons for people who could never repay her, some of whom could not even thank her on earth. Come up to the front of the line. You're going to be great in the kingdom. So you shouldn't ever ever think that Jesus is trying to squelch, to kill off your desire for greatness, what you should do is recalibrate your idea of what greatness actually means. Because discipleship to Jesus means that you will selflessly... For the love of the name of Jesus, not for the rewards anybody else can give you, you will dedicate yourself to service to others, remembering, number three, that the sacrifices made on earth will be rewarded by God in eternity. God will be absolutely no man and no woman's debtor. No one will ever arrive at the judgment and say to the Lord, I served you too much. I gave too much, I sacrificed too much, I was too humble, I was too loving, I put others ahead of myself in your name, and because I loved you, I loved and sacrificed for them, and it didn't work out. You'll never face that disappointment. Many people in this world, your jobs, your schools, your companies, they'll take the best that you can give them and use it all for their own self-aggrandizement. They'll use you like what they think of you. They'll use you like a small tool in their big machinery to promote their own name. Your Heavenly Father is so loving and so gracious that He will not be outgiven by anybody. If anybody will take His Son's teaching to heart, name Himself a servant, even a slave, to the interests of others, not for their sake, but for the sake of obeying their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Your heavenly Father will reward your pursuit of real greatness and you will enjoy rewards that you can never even have imagined on this earth. We just have to get it through our minds that with Jesus, the way up is actually down. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Not climbing the ladder up, but following him down into service. And the question before us really only is, are we going to be those who follow Him? His teaching is as clear as the noonday sun on a cloudless day. It hasn't, been, it hasn't failed for lack of truthfulness. It's only failed for lack of obedience. My invitation to you is to do the hard walk with Him. And reimagine what you thought your life should be, what you've been thinking about being great on your own terms, and adopt his terms instead so that someday you will hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Christian, could I just give you a moment to be honest with yourself? This week, I thought I had this sermon figured out. And the sermon was clear, but then I was put into a situation that tested my heart. And I found out that I didn't know anything about it at all. That it's much easier to preach this stuff than it is to live it. Maybe you could make your own self-examination. Is there anybody you're selflessly serving? Or is there always a little bit in it for you? The world's always ranking and calculating. Are you? Who are you selflessly serving? Can you name them? Maybe. Maybe this is your first time in church, your first time in a long time. Or first time really you've, you've paid attention to Jesus in a while. Did you know he gave his life for rescue for yours? He died on the cross because you will not be good enough for God on your own. You probably already realize that. Your conscience tells you that. You have good days and bad, but if, if God is the standard, if holiness and perfection is the standard, you already know you're not that. His invitation to you would be to give up on sin, give up on Self improvement, self salvation. Ask him to save you. Enlist as his disciple. Put him in charge. If you need to do that, I'd like to invite you to ask him to do that for you. So, two kinds of people, anytime the gospel is preached, those who need to become disciples and those who need to be true disciples. Take up the master's teaching see their selfishness, their self-interest and choose to put His name and the interest of others ahead of their own. Trusting that God in grace will see all that. And with your selfless sacrifice, He'll reward you in a way that is far better than anything you could have ever sought for yourself.